Why not take all of me? Can't you see that I'm no good without... All right, we're back. We, we should note something we should have perhaps mentioned at the top of the program, which is that this is National Nude Recreation Week. It began on July 7th. And we would note that according to the American Association for Nude Recreation, the AANR, which to paraphrase uh, David Letterman is apparently a very powerful organization, tourism by the tan line Everse generates more than $440 million a year here in the U.S. According to The Economist magazine, of the more than 250 nudist and clothing optional resorts and clubs sprinkled around the country, the small mom-and-pop operations are folding while the survivors are going upmarket. They note that one reason for the rise in luxury nudist travel is that customers are aging. Nudists tend to be older, richer, and whiter, well, pinker anyway, than the national average, and they travel mostly in romantic pairs. The article concludes by making some positive comments about skinny dipping. Although I have to confess I've never been to a nudist colony of any sort, I certainly can advocate going out into nature in the buff, which can be quite exhilarating. And here's a bit of squirrely data related to going out into the sun, whether in the buff or not, which is that some research (laughs) involving UV light and mice is suggesting perhaps that exposure to uh, tanning rays can cause uh, physiologic effects similar to the effects of drug addiction. Supposedly, according to researchers at the Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, that uh, mice exposed to UV light experienced a surge in endorphins. No, we're not sure how they measured that. But they also claim that the mice experienced withdrawal symptoms such as shaking and teeth chattering when their UV time was taken away. We are tempted to speculate at this point that it it was indeed Harvard uh, University that was one of the birthplaces of the LSD-taking movement by college professors. Speaking of dubious research, there, there appears to be a link going on between the gambling industry and professional psychologists. Seems pretty clear that a lot of games, video and otherwise, can be quite habit-forming. In a piece by Douglas Heaven in New Scientist, they note that uh, game designers in the past relied on a combination of intuition, sheer luck, and years of toil. And yet they've often been taken by surprise by the runaway success of their own games. Peace notes that although game science is in its infancy, it's already feeding insights from psychology back into, into design to produce what looks like a recipe for obsession. I don't know, I have my doubts about this piece. It seems to me that people up in Vegas have figured out how to make slot machines that, uh, that uh, addict people to their bizarre array of flashing lights and symbols. But this piece does answer a mystery for me. Why somebody on Facebook, a friend of mine, keeps asking me to come and join the game called Candy Crush Saga. According to the article, no game has harnessed psychology as deftly as Candy Crush Saga. Its construction is familiar, presented with a grid full of colorful candies. You line up at least three matching sets in a row to meet different targets and progress to subsequent levels. Unlike some other puzzle games, Candy Crush has become an instant, unstoppable juggernaut and a popular culture phenomenon. Since the game's introduction two years ago, it's become the focus of obsessive analysis and sordid confessions. And I have to say, I don't get this. I kind of took one look at the setup of this thing and found it very resistible. But then I don't spend any time 
pulling the lever in front of slot machines either. And if you find that hard to resist, dear listener, please get some professional help. It's a good way to waste your money. Since we're talking about bad habits, let's cite another piece from new scientists talking about cigarette filters, how they're a hazard to public health and the environment, and according to an editorial by Thomas Novotny, should be banned. The piece notes that by one estimate, around two-thirds of the six trillion cigarettes smoked worldwide every year end up being dropped, flicked, or dumped right into the environment, about 750,000 tons of butts. Noted the piece, used cigarette butts are not just pieces of non-biodegradable plastic. They also contain carcinogens, nicotine, and toxins found in all tobacco products. They noted that one cigarette butt soaked in a liter of water for 96 hours leaches out enough toxins to kill half of the fresh or saltwater fish exposed to them. Of course, I'm I'm not clear on what volume of water those fish were in, but still... Predictably, the tobacco industry has thoroughly distanced distanced itself from any sense of responsibility for cigarette butts, although other industries have signed up to the Extended Producer Responsibility, EPR, a principle which assigns responsibility for the environmental management of consumer waste to manufacturers of the original product. EPR has been applied to electrical appliances, batteries, paint, mattresses, car tires, electronic gadgets, beverage containers, and other consumer products. As you might imagine, the tobacco industry wants nothing to do with the cleanup of its butts. But curiously, according to the U.S. Surgeon General and the U.S. National Cancer Institute, cigarette filters do not have any health benefit for smokers. In fact, cancer risks have actually increased over the last 50 years as they've been used. Filters were originally designed to keep loose tobacco out of smokers' mouths, not to protect their health. So they're really a marketing tool. The piece notes they seem to reassure smokers they're doing something to limit the health consequences of smoking and thus may discourage them from quitting. They also make smoking more palatable and make it easier for children to start. The ventilation provided by the filter may reduce the tar and nicotine yield of cigarettes, as measured by a machine anyway, but smokers compensate by changing their puffing behavior and inhaling more deeply. For these reasons, filters may be considered a health hazard. Evidently earlier this year, politicians here in our State Capitol in Sacramento uh, submitted a bill to the State Assembly to ban the sale of filter-tipped cigarettes. The bill failed, but its sponsors say they'll try again. And speaking of toxins in the environment, they're at it again. Spraying against mosquitoes, conducted by the Sacramento-YOLO Mosquito and Vector Control District, which monitors mosquito conditions throughout the year. They've been out again of late. spraying uh, poisons over 17,000 acres in South Sacramento. And of course, we should note that the poisons that they spray everywhere are not specific for killing mosquitoes. They kill all insects. Is this a smart thing to do? We have our doubts, although we do note that in addition to West Nile, another virus seems to be making its way onto the mainland U.S. In fact, it's here. Chikungunya fever started out in Africa and Southern Asia, but it basically jumped the Atlantic, turned up in the Caribbean. We mentioned this uh, uh, last January in conjunction with Mr. Merlin and I's trip down to St. Kitts. It was on nearby St. Martin, and uh, well, it's made its way here. To spread this disease person to person, of course, someone has to have the virus in their bloodstream, but people are coming back from the Caribbean, bringing it with them. And some officials are fearing that the World Cup may further hasten the spread as visitors from around the globe spend time in Brazil, 
where mosquitoes carry the virus, and then they might return home with chikungunya. Like so many viral illnesses, there's no specific treatment for it. You just have to weather the storm and do what you can to not get bitten in the first place. And of course, drenching yourself with poison before you go out is, is one option. But no, I'm not, I'm not implying that mosquito repellent is a poison. The mosquitoes just don't like the smell of it. In fact, it was established by some rather distinguished research done right here at UC Davis. This may also fall into the category of dubious studies because uh, when I saw the press release announcing that um, this research had accomplished these great things, it seemed to me that um, answering the question of why mosquitoes avoid mosquito repellent should involve more of an answer than they don't like the smell. Another piece of new scientists. We're having a new scientist fest today about um, paracetamol, the world's favorite over-the-counter pain remedy. That's what they call it over in Britain. Here we call it Tylenol. As always, new scientists shed some light on a on a curious topic. Piece by Tiffany O'Callaghan brings out the fact that well, we really don't understand how Tylenol works. What really struck me about the piece was that there was a chart in there showing the amount of people, the number needed to treat NNT to get a 50% reduction in pain, and they compared several medications. I was generally surprised by these numbers. The number of people who'd have to take a drug for one of them to experience a 50% reduction in pain over 44 to 6 hours is 4 for acetaminophen. Yes, 4 people have to take the drug for one of them to experience a 50% reduction in pain. Ultram or Tramadol did a little bit better at 3 tied with naproxen and ibuprofen or Motrin. But even Tylenol with codeine still required somewhere between two and three people to take the drug for one to get a 50% reduction in pain, which, um, which I thought were surprisingly crappy results. In response to that letter, someone wrote, um, wrote the magazine, a man by the name of David Plews, saying he was glad to see the data presented in terms of the NNT, but he said he wished that they would have also included the NNH, number needed to harm. He said neglecting to do so led to a huge bias against paracetamol or acetaminophen. The writer noted that in the long term, even when used at standard dosages, aspirin, ibuprofen, and equivalent drugs are significantly more likely to cause internal bleeding as well as cardiovascular, cerebrovascular, and renal side effects, which in some people can be fatal. So I guess the punchline is if you're taking Tylenol at standard doses, you don't really have to worry. Now in terms of doctors taking drugs, bad drugs, there was a piece by a Ken Murray writing in the Sacramento Bee uh, last month, noting that there'll be an initiative on California's Demerva ballot, which includes a provision that would require physicians to be drug tested prior to practicing in any hospital or after any, quote, adverse event, unquote. This is packaged with other measures that appear punitive towards all physicians. The writer went on to note that, you know, he'd experienced people who had done surgery while smelling of alcohol, something that this correspondent has also experienced in his medical career. He goes on to note that until a few years ago, the licensing board for physicians in California, <laughs> who we've complained about in this show before, had a diversion program for those who were identified as having an abuse problem. It had a 75% long-term success rate and allowed for anonymous reporting of suspected abuse. However, the licensing board, in its wisdom, recently discontinued this program, stating that the board's primary mission was patient protection, not physician rehabilitation. 
Noted Dr. Murray, funding should not have been an issue because the program was paid for by physician licensing fees, not by taxpayers. Of course, a few of our politicians in Sacramento found a way to tap in to those funds for the medical board, which I'm sure is why they got removed and taken elsewhere. He concludes by noting that mandatory testing is going to cost a lot of money. It's going to be intrusive, the daily practice of medicine, but... um, Patient safety concerns might justify such testing for doctors, just as it does for uh, pilots. I have my doubts about this. Not sure that they're going to not do more harm than good. Well, as regarding this ballot initiative, Murray notes that none of this should be done by a deeply flawed ballot initiative. Instead, the legislature should craft a careful law that will work in practice. All right, I got two other pieces in my hand about why doctors aren't overpaid in America, which one I want to talk about, and why drug companies are screwing us. But I'm going to just defer both those pieces to next week's show and instead talk about some interesting genetics versus human evolution. We mentioned in this program the fascinating fact that a couple of bones, I think a tooth and a finger bone from a cave in Siberia, have led to a whole other branch of human beings about whom we know very, very little. There's no definite fossils to date that we can say belong to the Denisovans. And yet, genetic research is showing that their genes got spread over a lot of places. In fact, it turns out that they made a genetic contribution to the people living in Tibet that was quite critical. This relates to a gene called EPAS-1. This encodes part of a protein called hypoxia-inducible transcription factor 2-alpha. Now, transcription factors activate other genes, and this one, as its name suggests, does so in response to low oxygen levels. Turns out everyone has some version of the EPAS-1 gene, so all of us can acclimatize to high altitude. But our acclimatization comes at a price. We make extra red blood cells, which makes blood stickier, more likely to clot, which increases a risk of thrombosis. This doesn't take place with Tibetans. They're well acclimatized to living at higher altitudes, but don't have noticeably raised red cell counts. Apparently, the Tibetan version of this gene is fairly unique, but it does match what turned up in the Denisovans. So evidently, by some genetic accident, the Denisovans were pre-adapted for living at high altitudes, and when people moved up to the plateau of Tibet, this gene just took over. And these mysterious Denisovans um, didn't just make it to Tibet. They apparently made their way to Western Europe. Paleontologists have located a cave called La Cima de los Huesos near Burgos in Spain that has a lot of bones there from between 600,000 and 300,000 years ago. In fact, La Cima de los Huesos translates in English as the bone pit. So far yielded 6,500 pieces of human skeletons representing at least 28 individuals. Most of them seem to be classified as Homo heidelbergensis, which is the name given to the first humans who lived in Europe starting about 600,000 years ago, but they also have features of Neanderthals. And at least some of the genetic material for the mitochondrial uh, DNA uh, apparently also came from the Denisovans or is related to them. So these folks got around and we know very little about them. But we confidently predict that we're going to learn a lot more in the near future. These DNA studies are enabling us to, um, to figure out where people came from and where humans moved in ancient times. I think we mentioned a few weeks ago that bones found in a cave, well, a flooded cavern, anyway, in Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula, by analysis of the DNA, showed that it was related to human beings living in Siberia. There's been all 
sorts of evidence indicating that uh, human beings did come over to the New World from Siberia 15,000 to 20,000 years ago, and now we have even better DNA evidence proving that that's the case. And speaking of Mexican DNA, which is not a segue we use terribly often, a piece in the LA Times by Jeffrey Mohan showed that uh, DNA analysis of Mexicans is showing that there is a staggering genetic diversity present. The piece starts out by noting that writers, artists, and historians have long pondered what it means to be Mexican. Now science has offered its answer, and it could change how medicine uses racial and ethnic categories to assess disease risk, testing, and treatment. The punchline is that from a genetic standpoint, the meaning of Mexican is quite complicated. That's funny. I remember having an argument with Mr. McMillan's brother about this very topic a couple of decades ago. After traveling extensively throughout Mexico, I made the observation that, um, from what I could see, the Mexican population was mainly indigenous, genetically. He said, no, Mexicans are mostly mestizo, meaning that they're a mixture. Well, technically that's correct, but it has now been proven by genetic studies. <laughs> Yours truly was right way back when, and noting that the genetic signature of the indigenous population was very definitely not swamped by that of European migrants who came to Mexico. Anyway, it's amazing what we're learning with these new tools we have now to examine DNA. Very cool stuff. And uh, a bit of informal genetics uh, came to my mind last year when one of my medical classmates was writing about um, their kids and made the observation that they were musical. I guess I'd never given much thought to uh, uh, people being musical, having a genetic component, but new studies show that apparently it does. These studies on twins seem to indicate that uh, if you've got the right genes, you can become a good musician with practice. If you don't got the right genes, you can practice till you're blue in the face, and you're still not going to have it. Now let's close with one final science item that's not related to... Uh, medicine or genetics, which is that the famous Antikythera mechanism, well, I say famous because we talked about it on Radio Parallax previously, it relates to a series of gears and machinery that was found on a, um, an ancient Greek shipwreck back at the turn of the 20th century. And what seemed to be a very startlingly complex piece of machinery was finally decoded by some very clever people in the past few years, they discovered that it was indeed a geared device that enabled the people that would work it to predict eclipses and observe the motions of the planets around the sun. No one previously had any idea that such a complex piece of machinery existed in the world of ancient Greece, but obviously it did, which is itself quite a mystery. But it turns out that there's one piece that doesn't fit in all of this uh, bits and pieces of machinery that was pulled up off the ocean floor. It's called Fragment D. Its workmanship seems different from that of the other pieces, and it appears to be made of a different metal alloy. Therefore, people think there probably were two such mechanisms on board this ship, at least two, and they're going to go back and do some more diving and see if they can find more pieces. We sure hope they do, and we sure hope that after they do, we can talk about it. But we need to take a short break, so we shall do so. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.
If you come around here